Hello and welcome to the Learn English Football Podcast with your hosts Tom and... Tim. Hi Tom. Hi Tim, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Enjoying this lovely temperature here we have in Spain, in our city, Almeria. But we're here to talk about football and I believe we're going to discuss the Nations League, which has just finished now. Yeah, talking about temperatures, the football has been hotting up recently, uh, getting a little bit more exciting, getting a little bit more intense. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been an exciting week of football, Tom. Uh, I've been watching uh, Spain, I've been watching England, Portugal, uh, a bit of France, dipping in and out of different matches, lovely. To dip in and out, uh, that's something I would use when I go to the seaside, to dip my toe in the water. Uh, to, to experience a little bit and then maybe change a little bit to another match. Uh, mm -hmm. It's nice watching international uh, matches because you don't have such a strong connection with the club. Um, mm -hmm. So you can uh, enjoy them really for football reasons, not for kind of emotional heart related reasons. Right. Well, before we get stuck into uh, focusing on some of the teams, I believe we're going to talk about Spain. We're going to talk about England and we're going to talk about France. Let's clarify who has qualified in this tournament? Who will be the four finalists next summer? In the prestigious Nations League, the semi-finalists will be uh, Spain, Croatia, Netherlands, also known as Holland, uh, and Italy. Uh, Tom, do you think they're the four best teams in European football? At this present moment of time, I think you can argue that they are. Uh, I have to say, with a disclaimer, meaning, you know, something, a disclaimer means... Small print. A small print, yes, that's right. That actually the Spain-Portugal game was very close. Likewise, the Belgium-Netherlands game was very close. So we could easily be talking about Portugal and Belgium in the final. But I tend to agree, at this particular moment in time, on form, current form, these are the four best teams. Okay. Um... I'm, I'm not sure. I think, um, I think it depends a lot on the priorities of the teams at the time playing in the Nations League. I think we've got to remember that this Nations League has substituted, has substituted fr uh, friendly matches. And friendly matches were when managers would experiment. Um, and I think in, the, in a World Cup year, maybe some of the, the, the Nations League games after the end of the, uh, of the league season in June and July... Um, Maybe there were some experimental lineups from some of the managers of the bigger countries that were more focused on maybe the World Cup. Um, and I think that's maybe reflected in some of the, uh, the form in some of those teams. I mean, if we look at France, they've won one of their last six games and they're world champions and most people's favourites for this World Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, and England, three draws and three losses. And if we look back to our ma matches in the summer, there were some experimental sides. Um, mm -hmm. So... How much do you think, Tom? Do you think we should? How much do you think we should read into these results? How much do you think we can interpret from these uh, from the form of teams in the Nations League? You make a very good point about experimentation. Uh, managers essentially use the Nations League to experiment. Now, the big climactic moments in the f international football calendar are the World Cup and the European Championships. Uh, which happened last summer, and of course we have the World Cup in Qatar this November. So the Nations League is the interim period, meaning it's the dip, uh, the, you could say an anticlimactic moment where teams are not so focused on building up their form. Uh, so as a result, we might see that the teams that are on top and doing well in the Nations League will not be 
the same teams that do well in the World Cup this especially, November. Especially Italy won't do so well in, in the World Cup. That's a very good point. Italy, I'm sorry, Italian fans, yes, they will not be there. And likewise, Germany. You know, Germany, I think they finished third in our group uh, behind Hungary, uh, Italy first and Hungary second. However, uh, if there's anything we know about Germany in major tournaments is that they consistently get to the quarterfinals or semifinals. And I would uh, expect the same of them again. Yeah, it's interesting um, because essentially these managers are faced with difficult decisions because, you know, they, there is pressure to win these matches. They are official competitive matches. They're not friendlies. So you will have the media on your case, on your back, criticising you if you perform badly. But at the same time, if, for example, uh, Luis Enrique wins the Nations League uh, but loses the World Cup and goes out in the first round, I imagine that would be a disappointed Spanish public. And alternatively, if Roberto Mancini wins the Nations League um, and was to... Uh, the Italian public will still be sad that they're not at the World Cup. So mm -hmm. it's, it's easy to say a match is a competitive match, but does it feel competitive in the hearts and minds of the players, of the managers, of the fans? And really that's where football's competition, the beauty of football competition comes from. It's in the emotion of the competition. Um, so yes, uh, related to all this, Tom, is the question of so close to a World Cup, what's more important? Um, loyalty to players who have performed well over maybe one or two seasons in the international side. I'm thinking maybe, for example, a player like Harry Maguire. Uh, but there are other players as well in other countries, like, for example, Alba in Spain. Or is it more important the form, the current form of the player uh, who's playing well? Uh, for example, maybe a Gaia who's playing very well for Valencia or a Ben White who's playing very well for Arsenal. Don't think too much about the players. The question is, is it too late with the World Cup only 60, 60 days away or less? Is it too late to be changing first, first teams? Is it too late to be changing your starting eleven? Um, or if there's a young player playing well, is it is it still is there still time to put him in the side? What do you think? It's never too late to make changes. You can't ignore a young player if they are in sparkling form. By sparkling, I mean great form. Incredible form. Yeah, that's right. So uh, this is essentially a conundrum for every international manager. They have to balance their loyalty to their experienced players, players who understand tournament football, players who can bring knowledge and experience to the dressing room, they have to balance that against young players such as the ones you mentioned. Jude Bellingham at Dortmund is in sparkling form this season for them. Uh, so there, are, there is no easy answer. It has to be a combination of a little bit of experimentation and allowing for form and also trusting the experience. Shall we move on to talking about England? You raised a good point about Harry Maguire. Yeah, let's move on. Harry Maguire is, uh, if you could measure sporting success on the amount of memes uh, or jokes shared on WhatsApp, then I think uh, Harry Maguire would be on course for a Ballon d'Or nomination. Uh, unfortunately, that's not how we measure sporting success. Um, Harry Maguire has had a difficult time. Uh, for maybe some of our listeners, I will give a bit of a context. Uh, he was uh, brought into the England side, uh, having played well for Leicester City, earned himself a big money move to Manchester United, earned the Manchester United captaincy. I think he had two or three seasons where he hardly put a foot wrong. He was seen as an English Beckenbauer, a good defender who was able to bring the ball out of defence. And then 
maybe the beginning of last season, the wheels came off. And when I say the wheels came off, it, it is an expression that means things started going badly. The plan stopped working. And suddenly, Maguire looked very slow. He looked very easy to dribble against. He looked less sure of himself. His decision-making started suffering. So much so that he's now been dropped from the Manchester United side by Eric Tan Hag, the new manager. He's been on the bench for the last four games. But until this week, he had never put a foot wrong for England. And to put a foot wrong is to make a mistake. And so there was a strong argument to say that until he's made a mistake for England, then of course he should be, he should be starting. But then this week against Germany, Tom, he did make that big mistake. Was it one mistake or was it two? You could argue he made three. Uh, Depends how you want to measure a mistake. Um, The first one, though, was the real howler. And when we say a howler, we mean an unforgivable, massive error, a massive Mm. mistake. Um, He was trying to play the ball out of defence. He played the ball straight to the German attacker, Musiala, their most dangerous, skillful player, who then decided to run directly at Maguire and Tom... I felt sorry for Maguire. It was like watching a 40-year-old against a 20-year-old. It was like watching someone who, who moves double the speed against someone in slow motion. I, I didn't see... When the second Musiala started running at Maguire, I didn't see anything else apart from a penalty coming. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And then he gave the ball later away. He gave the ball away later for, the, for another goal. Kai Havertz. Kai Havertz goal. goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Tom, what, do we, what does England do with a player like Maguire? Do, do we stick with him? Do we try and build up his confidence? Do we tell him he's the best and hope that he can play his way back into form? Or do we, do we cut our losses and back mm-hmm. another, another centre-back? There are other centre-backs. The Tomori at AC Milan. He's, I know he's had a slow start to the season, but he was a, he was a league winner last season. Uh, we've got Gay at Crystal Palace, who's, who started very well. We've got Ben White, who's uh, who's very good. He can play in numerous positions. So what do you think England should do, Tom? Do you think we should stick with Maguire or risk one of our more informed defenders? Well, just before I answer that good question, I would like to comment on Musiala. Uh, for anyone who's listening who is a football player, when a player loses the ball that is the moment to attack that player. That's when the player who has lost the ball is most vulnerable. And that's what Musiala did to Maguire. He ran straight at him uh, because there is a rush of blood to the head of the player who's lost possession and an urgent desire to make amends. And that's what we saw with Harry Maguire. Uh, Of course, he was wrongly positioned to make that tackle as well. He was square on to the German attacker where he should have had one foot in front of the other one. Uh, But I thought that was an excellent moment to exploit uh, Maguire, who was at that moment desperate to make amends, meaning desperate to recover from his mistake. To come to your question, Southgate should drop him, meaning that he should remove him from the starting eleven. We've watched this decline in form of Maguire. It's a gradual decline. It has happened over uh, more than one season of football now. Uh, The player has lost his confidence at club level and at international level. You talked about memes. You talked about the internet. Harry Maguire is world famous over the internet. And unfortunately for Maguire, I think this is also affecting his confidence. Uh, I think it's created more pressure that he's putting on his shoulders because he feels now he needs to prove the world wrong. Some players who are mentally strong are able to do this. But at this moment in time in Maguire's career, he seems to have become weaker with this pressure that's on him. So I think that we need to change him. I also think he's, uh, he's not his own, uh, he doesn't help his own cause. He makes a rod for his own back. 
Uh, he creates a, a difficult situation for himself. I remember, was it last season? He scored a goal for England and he ran off towards the fans, cupping his ears with his hands. When I say to cup your ears, I mean to put your hands behind your ears as if to, to gesture, uh, I can't hear you. And let's not forget, it wasn't England fans that had criticised Maguire at this point. It was Manchester United fans. So really, what he did when he did that celebration was he, he incited... He created a, a, a confrontation with a group of fans who were, who were supportive of him. And that's exactly what you were saying, Tom. I think he's, he's lost perspective. I think he's taken a lot of this criticism very personally. This has affected his confidence. And as you say, it's been a gradual decline. And I don't see there being a quick fix. I think if Maguire wants to regain his top form, maybe he needs to leave Manchester United. He needs to go to a club where there's less attention on him and gradually build up his form. And it's not Gareth Southgate's job to make people happy. Mm. The only person Gareth Southgate needs to make happy is his boss at the FA and the 70 million people cheering on our, uh, England, mm -hmm. uh, not his 11 players on the pitch. Um, moving on, Tom, it's a kind of similar situation um, with the goalkeeper. Uh, we've got the, the established goalkeeper, uh, Pickford. He's been established for over f four seasons now. He's our World Cup goalkeeper in the last World Cup. Again, he's never had a, a major error for England, but his, his Everton form has been patchy. And when I say patchy, what do I mean? Consistent or inconsistent? Inconsistent. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you could also say my language is patchy. For example, me and you, Tom, we speak good Spanish, but for example, my Italian is patchy. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice word. It's, yes. a nice, it's a very useful word. Um, so they brought in Nick Pope, uh, the uh, Newcastle uh, goalkeeper, who's been playing well for Newcastle, but... He has obvious weaknesses with the, with the ball at his feet. Um, and he made a terrible mistake against Germany. And then you've got another informed goalkeeper, Aaron Ramsdale, uh, the Arsenal goalkeeper, who is probably the most all-round goalkeeper of the three. He's maybe not quite as good a shot stopper as maybe a Pickford is, but he's definitely much better with the ball than any of the other two. So, uh, Tom, who, if you were Gareth Southgate, would you be starting the first World Cup match with in goal? Is that Pope, Ramsdale or Pickford? If Pickford is fit, I would choose Pickford. Pickford. Uh, it's unfortunate for goalkeepers that we do judge them based on their mistakes. And uh, in the case of Nick Pope, the other night against Germany, it was a, a, a shot that he would have collected... Uh, 99 times out of 100 but at this moment with the spotlight on him the ball came out of his hands it reminded me a little bit of Rob Green playing in a, an England match in the 2010 game against the United States where the ball went through his legs for, and he conceded an easy goal now you never know if your goalkeeper is going to maintain their concentration and rise up to, uh, to the moment in the spotlight Nick Pope at this moment in time has failed that test. This was a, a test of how could he do in the World Cup. So in contrast, Pickford is proven. Pope has failed. And Ramsdale, the third option you mentioned, to my mind, he is unproven. We don't know whether he would pass the test or fail it in the spotlight. Yeah, I think they're interesting points. I think the spotlights, the media attention is crucial. Um, and as you say, if you, if, you've, if you would make a save 99 times out of 100, but the one time you don't make that save, it's the most important match of your life, as was mm. the case with Nick Pope against Germany, mm. that, that for me sets the alarm bells ringing. Mm. Um, it, it's worrying. 
Um, and you say that as someone who went to the same school as Nick Pope, yes, I think. Uh, so you have loyalty towards him. A claim to fame. I played cricket with his older brother. <laughs> um, so yes, I never, I never knew Nick. He's a, a little bit younger than me. But the King's School Ely, every time we see Nick Pope pull on an England shirt, we're very proud. Um, Tom, let's move on. Um, let's talk about, uh, I think, one of the rising stars in world football, certainly English football, Jude Bellingham. He was man of the match the other night against Germany. He looked like he'd been playing in that England midfield for years. He was pulling the strings. He was really the connection between the midfield and the attack. He's the, exactly the kind of player that England had been crying out for for years. And when I say crying out for, I mean desperate for. Um, I thought it was a complete performance. And the only worry I have is that it's taken Gareth Southgate so long to give him this opportunity. Um, and I worry that Gareth Southgate is too conservative in his choices, in his selections, um, and he's going to start with a Henderson or something like that. I'm desperate for England to start the midfield this summer at the World Cup with a, at the base of midfield with uh, Declan Rice and Jude Bellingham. Uh, do you think that's the strongest midfield pair at the, ba- the as the deeper midfielders? Cal- we have to remember Calvin Phillips was the England player of the tournament in the Euros 2020. Yes, so but he's had a lot of injury problems. He's only mm-hmm. played two games this season for Manchester City. He's got a shoulder problem. He's still out injured. There's a lot mm-hmm. of talk that he might not get back in time. So if he's not back in time, if he's not fully fit, then I would agree with you, Tim. Put Jude Bellingham in the base of the midfield alongside Declan Rice. Uh, if Calvin Phillips does return to form... Could Jude Bellingham work as the the attacking point of a triangle in front of the other two? Um, I think he probably could, but I don't think it's his best position. And I'm tempted to say that Jude Bellingham has the most talent of all the English midfielders. Uh, so it's best to play him in the position where he can exploit his talent the most, I would say. Mm-hmm. I still think there's room for Jordan Henderson as well. Uh, players like this have tournament experience. They have... Uh, something you can't it's something intangible by intangible I mean it's something that's not physical something you can't easily measure but that experience that comes from being a veteran will be again very very useful to Gareth Southgate in the dressing room with the younger players like Jude Bellingham so I think there is room for Henderson and Bellingham in that team but perhaps not at the same time Okay, Uh, it sounds like a a Lampard-Gerrard debate all all over again. (laughs) We're used to that one. Uh, So, Tom, let's move on. Another exciting match that everyone was uh, excited uh, to watch this week was uh, Spain-Portugal. We're going to focus on Spain, um, but let's talk about the match a bit first. It was was an exciting match. Uh, Spain, in the first half, they had a lot of possession, but they were unable to create opportunities. And at the same time, Portugal were very able to create opportunities. Uh, uh, Bruno Fernandes had a good game. Uh, a really good game in fact and if Ronaldo had been able to finish some of the opportunities he had Portugal would definitely have won this match so I think a 1-0 victory to Spain especially considering it was a very late goal for Morata on the counter-attack um, the result does flatter Spain and that mm-hmm. means to, the result makes Spain look better than they actually were um, and I think that's essentially because of some major questions in the Spanish uh, selection now Let's not forget that Spain are one of the most consistent sides. Uh, Luis Enrique, he doesn't use social media much, 
but this week he definitely made a point of releasing something on Instagram, I think it was, showing that Spain are the only side to get to the last four of the Nations League, get to the last four of the World Cup, finish top of their World Cup qualifying group, and get to the last, last four, four of the, the European Euros, Championships. Yes. So he made a point of emphasising their consistency, which I think is fair enough, but at the same time, a lot of fans of Spanish football who remember the, 19, uh, the 2010 World Cup and that side will be looking at this Spanish side and thinking they're lacking something, especially at the back and especially when it comes to scoring goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of the team selection was strange. Um, if you look at the match, they started with a midfield of Rodri, Coque uh, and uh, Carlos Soler. And I, don't, I wouldn't start with any of those players, Tom. I'd start with Busquets, Pedri and Gavi. I think the the Barcelona centre midfield is possibly the best centre midfield in world football. So mm-hmm. it makes me worry that Luis Enrique isn't playing that centre midfield as much as possible. Um, also at left back, you've got you've got Alba who started uh, not this game but the previous game against Switzerland. He's currently third choice for Barcelona, but still first choice for um, for Spain. I think there are some strange decisions. Morata is still starting up front. Okay, Gerard Moreno's currently injured, but we know Morata's a limited striker. Okay, he scored the goal. He will score goals. He's not awful, but he's not good enough to play in this Spain side. So, do you think there's some strange things going on with Luis Enrique, uh, Tom? Or should we trust the consistency of what he produ- of what his results show? I think we are right to be... If I am a Spanish uh, football supporter, I would feel a little concerned that maybe we don't have all the elements that are required for a World Cup winning team. Uh, you mentioned the teams of you know, 2008, 2010, 2012. Those perhaps looked like stronger teams with that blend of skill and experience uh, in the, some of those great players from the past. Here we have some exciting young players, like you mentioned Gabby and Pedri, uh, Obviously, yes, I agree. With Busquets in midfield, this would ideally be your your ideal three, but there are also important roles for some of the more experienced players. Coque, as as you mentioned, Soler, uh, Alba, Azpilicueta. I think Spain need to have some experienced heads in the dressing room to balance against the inexperienced players. I feel like this squad, when I look at it, it's a bit too much of the extremes in terms of age. You have very young players, uh, teenagers who perhaps don't have the experience required, and very old players who are already in their early to mid-30s who perhaps don't have the fitness that's required. So unfortunately for Spain, I, I think they are very, very good, but I think they would be better if they had more players who were in their late 20s, around 30, than what they've got in their squad right now. Yeah, okay. Um, I do think there are some things that kind of do raise questions. I mean, for example, the role of Eric Garcia. He hasn't really hit the ground running for Barcelona. Um, He hasn't really had a good season in in three seasons. I think he's had one good season in his career. But he seems to have a reputation as as an international level footballer. I don't understand Mm -hmm. it. And then there was um, the the central defence the other day. Uh, Guillamon started, Mm -hmm. but at at half-time he was substituted and Rodri was pushed back into centre-back. Now, in fact, it worked quite well, but it's the first time Rodri's played centre-back for Spain. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, the, f- the last game before a World Cup, do you not, should your plans not be a little bit more developed, a little bit more refined than experimenting with a player, playing in a position they've never played before, neither at club level nor uh, international level? 
Um, I, I beg to differ on that one. I think we might see that tactic come back in the World Cup because moving Rodri back into the defence opens up the central midfield for the Barcelona youngsters, for Busquets. So I could see Rodri... Uh, it, it basically comes down to what does Luis Enrique want? Does he prefer an established centre-back or does he prefer Rodri to come into that position, which will give them a bit of extra distribution, but they maybe lose a little bit of defensive quality. To play the, the Mascarano role. Yes, yes, like exactly. Like he did when he went to Barcelona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's Spain covered, Tom. Um, I think this Spain side does have some chances. They'll be looking to go deep into the tournament. Um, I don't know if they're going to win it, but they'll be in the mix. Um, a team who is uh, definitely one of the favourites for the tournament and on paper probably the standout favourite. When you say on paper, what do you mean? In theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a nice uh, alternative to on paper the other day in a football context, on grass, <laughs> <laughs> instead of in reality as the contrast. Um, France, Tom, they've, they've only won one of their last six games. Uh, their previous game, they lost 2-0 to Denmark. They were losing 2-0 at half-time. Um, they've got some problems on the pitch with injuries. They've got some problems off the pitch with um, problems with the with uh, some scandals, some sex scandals in the, in the government, in the footballing governance. Uh, they've got some strikes. Uh, what's a strike, Tom? Not a football a striker, mm-hmm. a, a strike at work. Yes, this is when all the players, all the em- in this case all the employees, if it's at work, decide to stop working or down tools to down tools mean that you say we're not going to work because we want to protest against something that's wrong at the workplace yeah well this is typical france tom you know you know they should be favorites but they're looking like they're going to try and find a way to, to ruin their their, their, <laughs> their possibilities of, of success um yeah off the pitch uh, mbappe has, has gone on strike. He's been refer- refusing to to meet his uh, commercial commitment uh, commercial commitments um, for two different reasons. One is because he doesn't want to represent companies that he doesn't believe in related to gambling and alcohol, um, which I think in some ways is quite respectable. But at the same time, he's accepting a salary from from an, a questionable state. Um, and then the second one, and I think, please clarify a questionable state. What do you mean? I mean a country which has potentially got a debatable priorities, debatable human rights record. Oh, you mean Qatar? Yes. Qatar, okay. Yes. Um, and at the same time, I think the second one's very interesting. In terms of image rights, apparently in French football, uh, before a player wins their first cap, they have to sign a contract to basically give most of their image rights earnings to, uh, to French football. Um, and Mbappe has said that before you win your first cap for a country... You will basically sign any contract that anybody gives to you because you're desperate for your first cap. So French football is using their position of power to exploit French players. And Mbappe has said, until they review this uh, this policy, that he's going to refuse to do any commercial commitments. And it looks like he's won. Player power has won. France, uh, French Football Federation, FFF, have come out and said they're going to review this contract. So I take my hat off to Kylian Mbappe. Uh, mm-hmm. in this situation but Tom on the pitch which is uh, probably where we're more interested they have got some problems last World Cup they had Umtiti and Varane at the back who were rocks they are now Var- rocks you mean rock solid very reliable yes they were super reliable uh, this season uh, well the last few seasons Umtiti's been basically injured Varane has had some sh- questionable form 
uh, for Manchester United. Of course, they've got young players like Fofana and Saliba coming through. Um, and then up front, they've got a, you know probably the Ballon d'Or favourite, uh, Karim Benzema, um, competing with Giroud, who is now France's top goalscorer in their history. Um, who would you rather, if you were Mbappe, Tom, who would you rather play with? Someone like Benzema, who's going to create magic, but also is going to want a lot of freedom and maybe move into your areas of the pitch. Or Giroud, who's, a lot less, who's got a lot less quality as a player, but is going to be a lot more predictable in their style of play, creating more space for you as Mbappe. So, Tom, just imagine for a short moment that you are Kylian Mbappe. Mm -hmm. Who do you want as your teammate up front? I'd probably want Ben Simmer. Uh, Why is that? You mentioned it. it, it technically, uh, he see, Ben Simmer seems to have a little bit more than Giroud. Now, I say this from the point of view as watching the player with the ball, watching his capability, the things that he can do. Ben Simmer can give Mbappe an assist on a plate, as we say, meaning that he can deliver the perfect ball for Mbappe. Giroud's work, though, I have to, to, again, as you mentioned, tip my hat to Giroud because they used him as their main striker to win that tournament in 2018. And he did a hell of a lot of work, uh, a huge amount of work uh, for the team without the ball, uh, chasing down the defence of the op opposition, creating pressure for the French midfield to win the ball back early and then... Uh, win on the break so I think both players give them different options they both have qualities that France can exploit but Ben Themer in this form I don't think we can argue with playing the potential Ballon d'Or winner I have two arguments for playing Giroud firstly is that um, international football is, is generally won with more simple tactics than, than club football I think Spain in 2010 was the exception and they were, what they really were able to do was transfer the tactic from the club at Barcelona and transform it onto the pitch with seven of the Barcelona players in the starting lineup. But um, and Benzema the way he contributes to attacking moves and to the flow of the ball is a maybe more subtle and more refined contribution mm -hmm. uh, which is maybe lends itself more to club football Whereas Giroud plays a more simple, more predictable style of football. You can close your eyes before Giroud gets the ball, open them five seconds later, and probably the ball is where you thought it was going to be because you know what Giroud's going to give you in certain areas of the pitch. And with fewer automizations in the relationships between players at international football, I think that that could be an advantage. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my first reason for playing Giroud. Mm -hmm. And the second reason is just his physical stature. The strength of the man um, means that if you're a defender and a long ball comes forward, you want your other centre-back near you. You mm -hmm. want cover, just in mm -hmm. case he, he battles you, he turns you. Mm -hmm. And so that cover creates space in the wide areas for some of the more dynamic, faster players like a Dembele or, uh, or an Mbappe. And if I'm a Dembele or an Mbappe, what I really want is to run against my wing-back without that wing-back having cover. So if Giroud has sucked in the other centre-back, that other centre-back isn't covering the, the wide, the, the wing-back. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if I'm an Mbappe or a Dembele, I'm in a better position. So that's why I might favour a Giroud if I'm a Didier Deschamps. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget, they didn't win the World Cup with Benzema. Did they win the Euros? They didn't win the Euros mm -hmm. when Benzema was back in the side. Mm -hmm. No, of course, Italy mm -hmm. did. So mm -hmm. Benzema has never actually won anything for this France mm -hmm. side. 
Um, and the two tournaments before he came back from his international hiatus, um, they didn't win anything. Oh, they won everything. Sorry, they won. So the, the, the stats would tell you that France are more successful without Benzema in the side. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a very difficult one for Didier Deschamps cause, because as you say Tom it's a very brave manager who drops a Ballon d'Or winner mm-hmm. given the age of the players I think we'll see both players <coughs> if Giroud starts he'll be substituted on 60 minutes likewise Ben Semmer I doubt that we'll see him play a full 90 minute game of football I think in, in many ways it is a blessing for Deschamps to have both players uh, who will be a direct replacement, one for, each, for one for the other? Yeah, um, possibly. Yeah, no, definitely be able to use them both in a squad. Um, so, Tom, I think that's basically all we've got uh, time for in terms of international football. Uh, mm-hmm. Club football returns with a very intensive uh, spell uh, until the World Cup. Uh, most teams uh, will be playing at least two times a week: uh, Saturday, Tuesday, Sunday, Saturday, mm-hmm. Thursday, Monday. Uh, there's only 51 days uh, um, until the World Cup. Um, is there anything club football that you're looking forward to this weekend, Tom? Uh, club football, I'm looking forward to the North London derby, actually. I think uh, it's one of the most exciting ones for a long time because we have Arsenal, of course, top of the Premier League, played seven, won six, lost one. And we also have Tottenham, who are not far behind them, also with a very, very good record and an excellent squad, excellent manager this season. So uh, I imagine you must be very excited about the Arsenal-Tottenham match. Um, Yes, excited, scared. Um, There's a mix of emotions before a North London derby. It's definitely the match where I feel greatest fear because uh, the thought of losing to Tottenham is, is an embarrassing thought. Uh, I can justify in my head losing to Manchester United, to Chelsea, to City, but there's no way I can justify losing to, to Tottenham. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of a lot of uh, fear and excitement, and there's also a massive desire for revenge. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that Tottenham really outplayed Arsenal uh, the last time we met uh, at White Hart Lane at the end of last season, took fourth place, took the Champions League off Arsenal. Uh, so there's definitely revenge, and I imagine Mikel Arteta will be using that result to really encourage the players. Um, the big question, of course, is um, will Tottenham try and play football, having spent £200 million in the summer, or will they just try and kick the ball long and hope Son's speed and Kane's finishing ability will be enough to uh, get them a result? Sorry, I'm probably showing my, uh, my biases already. Um, but you're right, Tom, it will be an exciting match. The two teams who, as you say, are on form. Is the game at uh, Arsenal Stadium, the Emirates, or White Hart Lane? Yeah, it's at the Emirates. And if you look back over the past few seasons, I think there's, uh, I think there's been very few victories away from home in the North mm-hmm. London derby over the past five or six seasons. So you would definitely say Arsenal are favourites. I think there are some key questions. I think the fitness uh, status of Thomas Partey is mm-hmm. crucial. He is crucial to the way Arsenal play. I think he's very hard to substitute. He didn't mm-hmm. play when we played them towards the end of last season. He was mm-hmm. a big loss. Um, there's talk of Kulusevski having a bit of a, a, bit of a hamstring injury, mm-hmm. having picked it up with Sweden. So that, of course, would be mean Richarlison coming in. Richarlison's a very dangerous player, but he doesn't link so well with the midfield. So I think both teams will have some last-minute injury questions coming into the game. I believe Richarlison did score for Brazil in this last break, though, in their last game. I think he might have scored two goals, in fact. He's definitely scored a header Uh uh, in one of the games. I Mm -hmm. saw that. Uh, It was a good header. 
Um, yeah, and that will of course give him a lot of confidence. You know mm-hmm. what playing for Brazil means to Brazilians, possibly mm-hmm. more than playing for the country means to most countries. Mm-hmm. Tom, I think that's all we've got time for. If any of our listeners want to get involved in our Facebook discussions, if they want to ask us any questions, how can they do that? They can find our Facebook page, Learn English Football Podcast. If any of our listeners are looking for additional study materials as well, I have a an offshoot. What, what, what do I mean by an offshoot? An offshoot is something which, a new thing, which is born from the first thing. Exactly. So maybe you would say Better Call Soul was an offshoot of uh, Breaking Bad. Exactly, yes. In this case, I have a, another podcast, which is an offshoot of the Learn English Football podcast. Uh, but this one comes with practice exercises so students can build up their vocabulary while they practice their listening skills. Uh, Most of the topics so far have been about football, but I also delve into some other topics as well, uh, related to news, politics, history, uh, just what I see, what interests me in the world, especially controversial topics. That podcast is called Study for English with Tom Hollett, uh, and the four, Study for English, is a number four. It's not F-O-R, it's the number four. Sounds interesting, Tom. I reckon our listeners should uh, tune in. If they're interested in actually practicing their English, boosting their vocabulary, I think they'll enjoy it. Good, good. Good stuff, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. See you next week.